Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. It's time to celebrate. At least, you know, I think we should celebrate for a little bit because it's been such a long haul. And yesterday was historic in hearing that Bill 124 interferes with collective bargaining in a substantial way and that the Superior Court of Justice said that the Protecting a Sustainable Public Sector for Future Generations Act, commonly known as Bill 124, is not a reasonable limit on the right that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society under Section 1 of the Charter. Thank goodness. This is what we've been talking about for three years, Sarah. Bill 124 is no more. That's my new saying. And I know that I I mean, I'm super, super happy. And I think my first reaction when I saw this was like, I just got chills all over my body. I was like, could it be like, we've been talking about this for so long. I swear I've had dreams about Bill 124. And we literally have been talking about this since we started the podcast. And I actually didn't think they would come out with this decision so soon. And I mean, it's been definitely the highlight of my week. I know there are, I know this is just the first part of it. And, you know, there are other processes that are going to unfold, but I'm really excited, even if this does get challenged. I mean, this is a really historic day for nursing. It's a huge win for us that the courts did agree with what we've been saying all along. A hundred percent. And I think this just goes to speak to, you know, the passion and grit that public healthcare sector workers have been having over the past three years. I mean, there was no explanation, none whatsoever, as to why this bill was put in, other than the government saying, well, you know what, we need to curtail our spending. Um, and this will really help with with that. And there's been evidence, and this is this is what Canadians need to hear and Ontarians need to hear, that there's been evidence that, you know, this particular bill actually would not have hindered our finances the way that the government had thought it did. And then, you know, at the same time, this government was providing tax cuts or license plate sticker refunds more than 10 times larger than the savings from this wage restraint measure. And again, that just speaks to the fact that Doug Ford had a war on women's professions. He had a war on public sector professions. Police and firefighters and other male-dominant careers were not underneath this bill. Why were they not a part of this? 
And it just speaks to the fact that Doug Ford has a record of trying to curtail Ontarians' ability to collectively bargain and is anti-union. And he isn't for freedom. He is for corporations lining his own pockets with money and doing what is in the best interest of people who are funding the PC party. Right. And if you just look at what they say all the time, they do all of this under the pretense of balancing the budget. So at what cost do you want to balance the budget? Do you want health care to crumble? Do you want people to be literally dying in a hospital waiting room, which is already happening? Do you want people to not be able to access screening and have surgeries that are going to save their lives? I think this is just very telling of where his priorities actually lie. Because if it's so easy to get a license plate refund, which by the way, I didn't even have to do anything. It just came in the mail. And we've been fighting tooth and nail for three years just to be able to get an increase that's more than 1%. That is absolutely ridiculous. A hundred percent. And I think maybe let's um, like rewind the clock back to um, before there was Bill 124, because a lot of the questions I had received were like, you know, did this bill actually cause nurses to leave the profession? And I think that, you know, there were a lot of different things that caused nurses to leave the profession. And I would say that at the beginning of 2019, when the pandemic really started and hitting, putting this bill in was probably one of the main things that nurses were thinking to themselves, well, why is this happening to us? Like we are putting our our heart, our blood, sweat, and tears into going to work, showing up every day, not knowing, you know, what the effects of COVID-19 might be on ourselves, our families. And the government puts in this bill restricting our ability to collectively bargain and capping our wages at less than what less than one percent that is crazy it just spoke to me in a way that it was like we have to stand up and say something we have to not just stand up for ourselves but other folks that were a part of this there were teachers a part of bill 124 there were other members within the public sector that were in that were capped underneath this bill and it just didn't make any sense and i think the piece of this was how many opportunities, I think there were so many opportunities. It's been three years that myself, you, many other healthcare folks have been calling for the repeal of Bill 124. And he just dug his heels in and decided not to do it and had to use our taxpayers' dollars to fight something that was unconstitutional. It's it's insane. I think that a lot of this just makes no sense. Like, I remember when um, there was the teacher strike, right? And he was saying that, oh, um, we'll provide free childcare to frontline workers. I'm like, do you think you might have this all backward? Like, what do you mean free childcare? Where's this childcare coming from? Are there just extra daycare teachers floating around that we can find childcare for? Like, it actually makes no sense. And the thing is, now they're saying that if the government were to have to pay us back retroactively, it's going to amount to billions of dollars. I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. Why not just pay us what you should have paid us at the time? And now somehow they've got to find these billions of dollars to pay the healthcare workers back when they could have just kept them in the first place. Yeah. Like, I mean, it might cost the government $8.4 billion over five years. And I think that's something that, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, that's an unfortunate consequence. It's not unfortunate. It is actually 
exactly what should have been happening because this money should have been allocated to these groups. And again, this is where there's something really strange happening I, I, all over the world, really. But we're seeing it mainly in conservative areas of the government where these there's time and time of these overreaches of power. Like just recently, they've been talking about Danielle Smith in Alberta and her being like, oh, I hope Ottawa is paying attention. I mean, this this piece of legislation, the Sovereignty Act that she's pulling in, it's it's an overreach. And I don't understand where these governments are thinking that they can use ultimate power to do whatever they want. Again, it's not serving the people. And this is another conversation we all need to have. Like we think about, you know, the people that we elect that's supposed to be representing us as, you know, we are the people, but they're not acting in favor of people like you and I. And it's really scary to see all these overreaches. Like just the most recent one was the notwithstanding clause. And essentially these unions brought the government to their knees to say, oh my gosh, we made a huge mistake. Of course you made a big mistake. We all saw that it was a big mistake. And I think that, you know, Yes, they're planning on challenging this. And I hope that we start thinking about general striking, that we start thinking about, you know, this government is taking way too much from the people and we need to stand up for for what we believe in. And I think that we're seeing time and time again, these overreaches and that the government doesn't have our best interests at at heart. And uh, we're seeing it through whether it's through the green belt and the fact that Doug Ford had promised to not touch the green belt, I even saw that he deleted the tweet. Um, <laughs> but of course, people, you know, we all keep our, um, we keep these screenshots and seeing all these ties to like, he has ties to people who bought green belt land. And we're seeing all of this corporate capitalistic you know, or neo-capitalistic nonsense that's happening. And I think people are paying attention. Right. It's just a lot of this me, me, me mentality. Like if it doesn't affect them personally, it's not a big deal. So, I mean, if you are in a position of privilege and you don't have any health issues, of course, you're not going to care if, um, you know, health is in shambles. But obviously, we need to think about the greater good. And a lot of us went into nursing because we want to help the most vulnerable. And we are not in a place anymore to do so. When someone has, you know, 20 patients on a unit, how can you physically provide care when you're only supposed to have four? It doesn't make any sense. And no matter how loud nurses speak, we don't feel like he's listening. So this bill, whatever happens with this bill, I think that it's still a really important Thing to have happened, whether or not you know it's challenged or whatnot. I still think this is a huge win for nurses everywhere. Yeah, I was I was actually just about to ask you, Sarah. Like, what do you think this means for nurses? Like, wh- what do you think nurses and other folks in the public sector are are feeling about this? I think there's different groups. So, I mean, there are some people who are just absolutely overjoyed. Right, this is a really big deal. It's been a long time coming. And then I think there are people who are kind of cautiously optimistic because we know that the government is going to appeal the decision. And I don't know, honestly, what will happen at the end of this, but I do think that we need to hold our breath and maybe know that the final outcome hasn't played out yet. I do think that at least the judge ruled in our favor that it was unconstitutional. At least we can go back to the bargaining table and bargain freely again, even if it results in arbitration or whatnot. Yeah. And I I mean, I really hope that this, this is actually, I think, another opportunity where 
specifically for nurses, we start collectively bargaining about what our worth is. And I think that, you know, at the second part of the the segment, we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, um, talking about pay equity and talking about this, this kind of fear and notion of women to talk about pay and to talk about, you know, what they feel that they're valued and what they're worth. And I've seen so many comments going back and forth. And it's, it's a very interesting conversation because it's, it's a huge problem. But, you know, back to the whole fact that, you know, the government will be challenging it, will be appealing it. I think this is where we look to precedent cases. And and again, you know, maybe we have to get John back on here, but he actually did send us um, an article about what happened in Winnipeg. So in Winnipeg, the union which represented um, the government civil servants won again against the government of Manitoba, against striking down their, their bills, saying that it was unconstitutional. And they won their court court case, even though the government had appealed it. I think that he's going to lose. Like I, I watched Birgit yesterday on, um, I believe it was like Canada Tonight or something. And she was right when she was like, he is going to lose. The government is going to lose again. And I believe that that I believe in my heart that that's true, that they will lose, that they will not win this battle with bringing us back to court. And I think it's again, it's a it's such a waste of one all these folks time that they have to go and spend and of our money like it's not coming out of Doug Ford's pocket maybe the next thing to do is to actually sue him personally for all of the stuff that's been happening in relation to um, some of these unconstitutional bills and acts that he's been putting in but again I believe he's going to lose I think we should look at the precedent cases and I I think that again this just shows the strength of the people right and I think that no matter what the outcome is He'll never be able to come back from this. He has forever lost respect of nurses and healthcare workers. There's nothing that he can do anymore that is going to change how we feel. And I want people to think about this at your next local, provincial, or even national election to think about how healthcare workers have been treated and how your vote can influence a different outcome for the next term next few years. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, Amy, how the last election in our area had a really low turnout and people were upset with the results, people that didn't vote. Well, here is us saying you need to vote. Every vote makes a difference. Every every single person you can convince to vote makes a difference. And this is where we say healthcare and politics does intersect and you do need to be aware of what's happening and be more involved. I'm so glad that you brought that up because we I actually talked about that today on the radio because they were like, you know what, we actually just recently had an election. Why do you think the results were what they were? And I was like, you know, a lot of folks were apathetic. People felt that it didn't matter who they voted for because they would not see a change or they would not see difference. But again, we are suffering from the fact that we did have the lowest turner, uh, voter turnout in Ontario. And I think they said it was like quite unprecedented. And of course, there are certain folks that will always continue to vote. And I think that, you know, you see that come out in the, the age demographics and where some of these votes came from. And I, I want to I, I agree with you, Sarah, we need to urge the public to be like, if this is stuff that you don't want to see, these are things that or there are things that you deeply care about you need to get out there and vote. I, it's not a perfect system. Um, not everybody out there has people's best intentions at mind. And I think this is where we have to think about some of the policies that we're seeing that our governments are putting in that are creating these gaps of inequities. 
just this week alone, I don't know if you saw it um, recently, Sarah, but there was a tweet put out by someone, I believe, who is who has a disability, who's on ODSP. And they're like, I'm choosing made. This is their second go around. And now they're like, yeah, I'm choosing to die because the government um, won't help me with housing or my disability. And I just can't afford to live. People who are on Ontario disability, they're getting $1,169 a month. We're talking about inflation rates of 8%. What can, like, they said the average rent price in Toronto is something like, I think they said it was like $2,200. What are we doing to people? What are these policies that are being put in place doing to individuals? We are literally, I shouldn't say we, but our government's policies are literally putting people in a place where they feel that it's better not to live. And that's really, that should be concerning to everybody that should be concerning to all Canadians yeah like I mean I think it's just it's a scary thought that someone because of whether it's shelter insecurity food insecurity or the fact that they have a disability they shouldn't be cast aside and they shouldn't be thinking that their life is meaningless and then just the whole conversation about the fact that we have policies that allow people to say yeah I would rather die instead it's it's very concerning and that's of course a whole other podcast topic I mean, we know someone who is currently going through MAID. I don't know if this is the same person you're speaking about or not, but I actually have um, a colleague. So someone I went to high school with who chose MAID during the pandemic. So he had mm. a really rare disease. He had gone to the hospital. He was in this state of limbo where he couldn't go home because there was no support. And he ended up in a long-term care facility. And it was in that long-term care facility that he decided he wanted MAID. So he died at the age of 35 because he had a rare disease that he couldn't get the proper treatment for and he didn't have any supports to go home. And when they found him in his room, so his family had come to say their last goodbyes, there was urine and feces all over the room. It was absolutely disgusting. And to have his family's last memories of him be that way is just wrong. And every time I think about this, it actually makes me want to cry that somebody would have to or resort to maid because they can't get the care that they deserve. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where we have to urge voters and folks here in Ontario to start really thinking about things that mean a lot to them, whether it's the green belt, whether it's climate change, whether it's healthcare, whether it's disability. We can't be voters that, like, I just historically vote conservative because, you know, that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years or whatever the case may be. Or I could, I always vote liberal because that's what my parents vote for. No, we need to stop doing that. We need to start thinking about individually at what level are the things that impact us what are at what level are the things that impact other people at what level do we want to make sure that we are having a supportive environment it can't be me 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 because honestly the majority of these policies that the governments are putting in aren't supporting the average canadian they're supporting people who are in positions of power who make much more money than the average Canadian, and they never benefit us. So we have to start thinking strategically. We need to start being really smart, and we need to vote. I think that's going to be a huge thing that we need to start looking at in the next three years. And the other piece that I think we should talk about is what will happen if this government doesn't do what we want it to do? 
I don't think that we should take the option of a general strike off the table. I already said that, you know what, if it comes to that the, the this government is being tyrannical, then we need to start looking out after our, our, ourselves and for other people. We've seen, I, I kind of shake my head or scratch my head again, when we think about what happened with the convoy, or I should say the occupation, because that's what it was. And they were shouting about freedom. We're out here fighting for freedom. Where were they when Bill 124 was coming in, knowing that was actually unconstitutional? Where were they when the notwithstanding clause was coming in and that was hugely unconstitutional? Where were they when folks with disabilities are making less than $2,000 a month and can't live? Where are they fighting for freedom now? And it just speaks to the fact that they weren't about freedom and we need to start thinking about what we want to see in a society and we should be the ones to take up those torches and to do the right thing and maybe the next part of it is a general strike i don't know i was really inspired by the uh Kupi strike that we attended a few weeks ago and how mm-hmm. strong that union was and how you know invested the members were and i talk about this all the time, how even within nursing, we're so divided that we can't get anything done. And when you see a union that is very uh, female dominated, you know, very similar to nursing in the makeup. And I just, I just wonder, you know, I just kept wondering the whole time, why couldn't we have done that? And I don't know the answer to that. But I do think that it is possible. And I do think we should keep striving for that goal. No, I I agree. And I think this actually is a good segue into talking about Again, you know, finances and money and payment. And and this is a really tricky conversation for women. I don't know why, but it's it's really messed up our ideology. Um, and I'm going to just throw out a couple tweets that I'd put out. And um, it got a lot of different responses. And I'd say I'd say um, 98% of them were positive. And then again, I saw some of these nursing tropes that we, we really need to move away from. And I think that we could have a quick conversation about this too. So I'm sick of nurses saying that being a good nurse isn't about money. The fuck it is. I've got bills to pay too. Male dominant professions would never say this ludicrous stuff about pay. We don't nearly get paid our worth. And then the other tweet I said was hot take. Sorry, folks. Nursing isn't a call from God. It's a job, a job where women are exploited and treated like garbage. Our kindness is taken for weakness and we literally get trampled over all the time. And it's been interesting to see some of the feedback and comments. So, Sarah, what do you think about my takes on the fact that nurses and women should be talking about pay equity and talking about getting paid what we're worth? Oh, I definitely this think this is something we should be talking about because as women, we feel like this is it's something we shouldn't talk about, right? We shouldn't talk about money. We're already get, getting paid what we're worth. There's no negotiation when you start a new job. And I think part of it is that a lot of us have been working under unions for a long time. So there is no negotiation. But the fact is that there are a lot of things in life that are negotiable if you ever moved into a non-union job everything's on the table. And I don't know if women realize that. Or a lot of times, you know, they don't want to be trouble. They don't want to be an inconvenience. But how are we going to move forward if we don't even take that step? If we're too afraid to ask, we're too afraid to question, you know, we don't even want to ask what the salary is until we actually accept the job. And then we were like, okay, this is what it is. And I actually put out a post not too long ago that said, um, your job does not define your value. 
let's normalize having an identity outside of our professional careers. And a lot of people, you know, like you said, they agreed with me. And there were some nurses who were more experienced who said, you know, but I am a nurse. It's all I am. It's my vocation. It's me. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a healthy thing to do is to put your whole identity into being a nurse because you're obviously a nurse, but you're much more than that. You are a wife, a mother, a friend, an aunt, or, you know, I'm using female pronouns, but you know what I mean. You're a parent. You're so much more than that. And so if something did happen to where you decided to step away from your career, make a change, it's like having an identity crisis. And I think we need to move away from that. And we need to understand that nursing is a profession it is part of who you are, but it should definitely not be all of who you are. Well, 100%. And I think that this is where we, you know, people need to actually start thinking about like, where did this ideology come from? So these are very religious ideologies, right? Um, that, it, that you know, Florence Nightingale and all these people are like, it's a vocation, it's a call from God. This is where if you look at you know, where some of these things come from. It's this whole idea of subservience, right? That we are, we are servants and we are, we are the ones that are serving and, you know, we are supposed to play a specific type of role. And again, if you know anything about religious or religions or, or, you know, um, these various different dogmas, again, women are seen to be these subservient individuals. Nursing was heavily based within Catholicism I think this is where we need to move away from that. Like the whole idea behind nursing as this profession or as, you know, this calling, calling by nuns, it's an idea that kept nurses really crippled for many, many years, still is crippling the profession. And it's many of our nurses, and it's like almost something that was kind of taught in nursing school too, where it's just like this idea of us being, you know, we just do what we are told, here are our orders, it's a calling. No, it's not. It's a fucking job, just like any other job that you choose. But it's a job that we chose because we like it, we want to help other people, but we aren't doormats. And I think this is you're right about this whole identity crisis where it's just like we are not just what our jobs dictate for us we are so much more than just what that is but there is this there are nurses that i that i had they were very clear to say that they were 35 years 45 years into nursing and they still have these deeply rooted beliefs in this subservient role well sorry it's not florence nightingale's nursing anymore she fucked up and made a lot of things really hard for nurses yes she's paved the way but there were many other nurses before florence nightingale that we have not talked about in her history that have paved the way for nursing and we need to get away from this idea of subservience because that is what is crippling us there should be no reason we can't say this is what i'm worth and this is what i should be paid have you ever negotiated your salary, Sarah? Oh, I definitely have. More than once, actually. Um, I've negotiated once where I um, was offered a salary and I said, no, I need to make at least what I was making before. And they came back and they said, fine. So that was my first attempt. I probably should have asked for more, but I didn't. And then the second time around, I was actually uh, offered two jobs in two different organizations. And at the first one, again, I said, I need to make at least what I was making before. And they're like, done. That was $20,000 more than the initial offer. And then at the second place, they said, 
okay, we can't move up your salary because of equity within the team or whatever. I think basically they were saying you can't make that much more than the team members. And I was like, okay, so can you increase my vacation? Okay, so then another week was added. Can you waive the waiting period for my benefits? Done. Can you increase the educational fund or allotment that I have? Okay. Also, can we negotiate my start date? And they're like, sure. So I was able to negotiate my start date so that I had three weeks in between the job I was leaving and the job I was starting, where I think most people, and I've made this mistake before, where I jumped right from one super stressful job to another, and I didn't give myself that breathing time. So there is a lot you can negotiate, but you actually need to ask for it because it's not in the employer's best interest to give you all of this. They want to get you for as little as they can so they can save money. It's definitely not within their best interest. Just speaking of Florence Nightingale, Amy, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Florence Nightingale Pledge, but I found out about this just yesterday. And apparently this is something they still do in the U.S., but I never did. Have you ever heard of the Florence Nightingale Pledge before? I have, but I think it'd be good if you have what it actually is. I do. I do. I actually read it for the first time and I was completely shocked that this still exists and it still happens. So the pledge says... I solemnly pledge myself before God and in the presence of this assembly to pass my life in purity and to practice my profession faithfully. I will abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous and will not take or willingly administer any harmful drug I will do in all my power to maintain and elevate the standard of my profession and will hold in confidence all personal matters committed to my keeping and all family affairs coming to my knowledge in the presence of my calling. With loyalty, I will endeavor to aid the physician in his work and devote myself to the welfare of those committed to my care. So this is the Florence Nightingale Pledge, 1893. That's all I have to <laughs> this say. This is about over a hundred years ago. How old is this? And we're still using the same pledge. Well, think. Okay, let, let let's just let's just preface it this way. Do you think physicians would ever have this problem? Like, do you think? Like, why should we be subservient? Like, just because the church tells us to? Like, I mean, I think the church is rife with problems. And I think that there are many, many instances of that the fact that, you know, women are supposed to be seen as less in these in these types of texts that women are seen, you know, in some cases as Jezebels and these various different things. Like, I'm not going to take my profession out of a biblical text to say this is why I should act a certain way and we need to move away from that it is it is absolutely ludicrous and I just know that men don't have this problem Sarah men don't have this problem with negotiating salaries with demanding what they're worth but women do and we need to stop this nonsense. We have to curtail it. And if we want equ- equity, we need to demand it. We can't sit there and be like, oh, you know, um, we shouldn't ask. I think that a lot of employers actually rely on the fact that, you know, they lowball you with their first offer, whatever your salary will be. And they expect you to not come back, especially when it's a woman. They expect us not to come back with a counter offer. And we need to start calling their bluff. We need to be like, no, this is actually what I'm worth. This is actually what the market value is. This is actually what my male colleague would be paid. You think they have problems with this? No. And the other thing is they don't have any issues about talking about, you know, their pay or the importance of, you know, money 
as it relates to their professions. We have to eat too. We have to pay bills just as well as they do. Why should we make any less? And this is where we need to move away from these religious ideologies that are that talk about subservience and move towards a more equitable and just and pay and 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 fair pay. And I think this is where nursing schools need to do a way better job of talking about how we can advocate for pay equity, how we can go about having these conversations. Because again, I would say that we're not taught to have these conversations. I don't remember it coming up in nursing school. And this is where I can tell you, like many physicians even reached out and was like, yeah, no, we don't have this problem. Because when you talk about, you know, medicine, it's about power, it's about prestige, it's about privilege as well, where nursing isn't seen in those same lights. And we need to change that. Right. And I think the number one thing we can do to combat this is pay transparency. So asking upfront what is the pay range or talking with each other and sharing your salaries if you feel comfortable. I think we just have to get over this discomfort with discussing our salaries because if I talk to you, Amy, and we have the same job and I find out you're making 30% more than me, I would never have known that if I didn't talk to you. And then, you know, now I have some leverage where I can go back and say, I had the same responsibilities as Amy and the same experience. I need to be paid what she's being paid. And I actually went to a conference about a year ago where um, they talk about this fictional character. So he's a mediocre, middle-aged, white male named Chad. And Chad has no special accomplishments, but he has no qualms about asking for a pay raise that he may or may not deserve. And women are so anxious to do this. We don't want to trouble anyone. We feel like if we work hard, people will see our worth and give us what we deserve. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. You need to sell yourself and you need to ask before you get. And let's say you ask and you don't get. At least you tried. I think that's the main thing because if you stay silent, then nothing is going to change. A hundred percent. And I think that, again, um, sometimes it might actually be saying no to that opportunity. Like, I think that that's the other piece. It's just like, if you know that your colleagues, your male colleagues are paid more than you and you apply for this position and they underball you by a certain amount that it's actually probably good to call them out and be like, yeah, actually, I'm not going to take this job offer because I know that you're not being transparent and that you're not being fair. And again, just to call it out when it happens. And I think that it shouldn't be shameful to talk about worth. It shouldn't be shameful to talk about money. It's such an important conversation to have because if we don't talk about it, we'll continue to see those gaps. We need to close the gender equity pay gap. It's it's huge. And there's still so much evidence to suggest that it still is there. And uh, again, just going back to what we were talking about at the top of the episode, you know, government's actually creating bills, whole bills that cap public sector workers at less than 1% that were tended to be female dominated. It's a war on women. Most of the hateful comments, interestingly enough, were from men. So again, I think that speaks to, again, this, um, this culture where there's some fear or maybe fear that, you know, women might be making the same as men or even maybe greater in some instances. And you know what, too, fucking bad. Just even speaking about the podcast that we've done over the past few years, we've been asked many, many, many times to do work for free for the exposure. Oh my for God, this, the work for that. For free. Yeah. So, so I learned the hard way that you have to say no because if you just keep giving and giving and giving, people will keep taking and taking and taking. And at some point, your knowledge, skills, and expertise are worth something. And that something is money. 
And it's fine to do things for free once in a while. I think you have to be intentional about it. Like this podcast we do for free. We put a lot of time into it. But there are things that we won't do for free anymore. And I think that's fine. We don't have to. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, there's one there's a difference between making a choice to do something for free and then there's a difference between being exploited. Like <laughs> I remember us being asked to do some work for a large organization that makes millions of dollars and, you know, we did stuff for them for free. Right. And I remember when we were just like, you know, we've been doing this off the side of our desk. We have our podcast. We have our full time jobs. Don't you think it would be worth you know, the fact that, you know, you're asking us to do this work that you pay. And I remember the answer. I remember the answer being, well, we we, we don't have a precedent or a history of doing this. Well, time's a change and start thinking about, you know, if you're asking people to do work to actually pay them for it. And I think it actually goes to speak to media companies as well. You know, you ask lots of folks to come do some stuff. I think it's just in your best interest to offer an honorarium at the very least, I don't think it can hurt. And I think that at the end of the day, if you're doing work, you should be paid for it. And again, I, I have to put this plug out there because I feel it's important. If you're asking black women to do work, especially when in regards to racism, anti-racism, health equity, pay them. Please don't Absolutely. do this. Don't, don't do this like, oh, you know, we want you to come talk about anti-racism. We want you to do work on this black task force and it's for free. No, our work is not for free. Black women have been underpaid in so many instances. Don't take the credit for the work and then not pay us. It's so, so disgusting and it's anti-Black. Right. And then once you take a stand, just stick to it. You don't have to do work for free. Being voluntold to do something is exploitation and you shouldn't have to be in that situation ever. Yep. So uh, at the end of this, I would say, pay me what you owe me and uh, bitch better have my money. <laughs> Thank you, Rihanna. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to add, Amy? No, I, I think that we kind of hit on two really important topics. And, you know, I think that I, I really hope that, you know, nurses can start thinking about various different things, whether it's voting, whether it's, you know, thinking about the different things that mean the most to us, whether it's talking, speaking out on bills that are unconstitutional, and then talking about the importance of pay equity. One, whether it's bargaining for your, to have better, you know, better pay, better um, salaries, or whether it's just the fact of, you know, it's okay to be happy about the money that you're making or not making because like I think we should have that conversation too but women don't talk about getting paid and we should it, it's important men don't shy away from this conversation nor should women absolutely thanks for listening 